Welcome to episode 21 of the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the go-to for all things Little Rock and Arkansas, but I also like learning about other people and what they have to offer. That's why I started a podcast. My guest is Dr. Alan Christensen. He's a New York Times bestselling author, naturopathic physician, and thyroid disease expert. His book is The Thyroid Reset Diet. We'll talk all about it right after this. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, we're going to jump right in, Dr. Christensen, and ask the most important question, something you talk about in your book. Uh, Of course, that will be in the show notes. Are you saying that 80% of thyroid patients can reverse their condition by following your diet? Well, the studies have shown that those with Hashimoto's, 78.3% have reversed thyroid disease with diet alone. It's a pretty big claim, but yeah, that's what we've seen from clinical trials. Because you know, we've been told, those of us that are in the Hashimoto's family, and that means that I also have other autoimmune conditions, six, because I'm such an overachiever. Uh, But we've all been told in that Hashimoto's umbrella, this is your lot in life. Um, You're not going to be able to reverse it. And just here's your armor thyroid, and I take a little Synthroid with it because I need a little T4, and go about your day. So when did you start realizing that you could use magical powers of diet and (laughs) you could reverse Hashimoto's? Well, the benefit of diet I've been an advocate for for a long time, but the idea of disease being able to reverse this often, it's it's newer data. It's been the last several years it's really come together. You know, I've treated thyroid disease for 25 years. And if you'd asked me about this a decade or so ago, I wouldn't have had this answer available. Then what made you explore how important diet is to even the health of our thyroids? Uh, Diet I've been an advocate for all along and I done have thought about for quite a while. A lot of it's been just driven by, by new research, just watching the data and looking to find answers and seeing it as it emerged. Well, let's go over the basics. There are some people who are not blessed with this condition. I feel like you can't swing a dead cat without hitting somebody with it. But let's talk about some of the symptoms that typically a woman, I know there are some men, but typically a woman comes to your office and let's talk about the symptoms she'll present with. Yeah, we've looked at this and the biggest ones wrap around weight and fatigue. And they seem to be two sides of the same coin. You know, if the body has energy trapped in somewhere, that trapped energy is the physical mass that makes weight loss stubborn. And that trapped energy is stuff that can't get burned. So the, the, you know, she's tired. She can't remember properly or think well or enjoy exercise or get through the day that well. So yeah, the fuel is stuck and that creates weight loss resistance, easy weight gain, and then fatigue and brain fog. I would say it was the weight gain and the fatigue that forced me to finally go to a doctor and it was a fatigue unlike anything I'd ever experienced. It was like that uh, pregnancy fatigue that as a woman's like kind of at the end, middle of her first trimester. And I would say somebody roofied my, my Diet Coke. That's when I drank diet sodas. I don't. But I remember thinking someone, someone put something in my drink. I cannot explain this fatigue. And I just remember those doctors patronizing me in the beginning. It took me four years before I got my diagnosis. 
because my TSH was always within normal range, which mm. I feel like that's kind of a moving target, uh, just kind of patted me on the leg and said, well, you just need to take a B vitamin and go for a walk. And I go, I do. And I have, and I'm still not better. Um, so do you think in the time, in this 25 years, you how, how long have you been practicing? That long? 25 years. Okay, so then you really have seen the pendulum swing because you've probably seen TSH levels at least get a little more narrow that helps us advocate for thyroid patients. But do you rely on the TSH? Um, not solely. It's a very helpful tool, but for sure one can be misled if one only focuses on that. What are you looking for then? when So someone sits down in front of you and says, I am so tired. Uh, I'm I'm losing hair. I've lost the outer third of my eyebrows. You know all the symptoms: breaking nails, I dry skin, low libido. My doctor immediately went to depression. Said I probably had dysthymia because mine was kind of low grade, and you know I was pumped up on all the Wellbutrin a human could take, and I was like, I'm not better. So, you know. What have you seen? And thankfully, my TSH then was 3.9. So he kind of went, let's just look at your antibodies. Do you rely on that? Um, rely on it. It's a helpful tool as well. You know, it confirms when there's autoimmunity. It doesn't rule out autoimmunity. Many that have it don't have positive antibodies. Uh, but there is data that those that have elevated antibodies, even with optimal thyroid levels, <clears throat> that it can also be a driver of symptoms. Would So there used to be the statistic that like 95% of thyroid patients have autoimmune thyroiditis. Is that still about the number? Well, the tricky thing is that, you know, there's, there's an asymmetry between how we can rule things in, how we rule things out. How do we know it's there? How do we know that it's not there? So yeah, those that have autoimmune thyroid disease, about half, slightly half, maybe a little more, will have positive thyroid antibodies. The only definitive rule out would be repeated biopsy and cell analysis. And that's not practical. So in most cases, when we don't see positive antibodies, some cases will confirm by ultrasound that there's signs of autoimmunity. But since we don't have hard data on ruling it out for most people, the 95% is an assumed number. It's probably, probably reasonable, it's probably in that range. But there's not really a hard number on that because there's not an easy rule out for autoimmune disease. So you're saying you could still have low antibodies, but be autoimmune thyroiditis. You can have negative antibodies. You can have no thyroid antibodies whatsoever and have autoimmune thyroid disease. Yeah, many don't understand that. So okay. the antibodies rule it in, but they don't rule it out. I see that now. Okay, I didn't realize that because I think that's also another thing that doctors will just then cross it off, go, well, it's not autoimmune. Your TSH is yeah. fine. You're fine. Move yeah. on. Yeah, you know, and that's that's not an accurate understanding based upon thyroidology. It's just so discouraging because, again, I mean, I repeated it for just so many years till finally a, a family practice doc said, "You know, I just li I, I believe the patient." I was like, well, "Why wouldn't you?" I mean, why why are we even having this discussion? I believe the patient. Well, of course you should believe the patient. And he finally just said, "He said I just don't know much." you know, how far we should go with this. And so when you're looking then at a patient who's had maybe an ultrasound, are you looking for like lumpy, bumpy features of the gland that would show you that it's more, is that more autoimmune than let's say cancerous or something else? 
Sure, yeah. So um, Hashimoto's has two structural variants. There's the goitrogenic and the atrophic. So basically it gets big and lumpy and bumpy, or it just shriveled and Swiss cheese holes like appearance to it. And then also it can be hypervascular, you know, extra blood vessels on that. We can see calcifications, but those are some of the main structural findings. Um, so does it finally the gland atrophy after it's because it it's autoimmune, that means your body's attacking itself. So does the body finally attack itself so much that the gland just fizzles out? Yeah, that's one variant. And that's about like 30, 40% of Hashimoto's. It does atrophy and shrink. The other variant, it can swell and enlarge from the, from the autoimmune attack. Do you feel like that's in the beginning of the disease phase? The, the swelling and then as time goes on, it atrophies? Um, they're more so like two separate tracks. People tend to go one way or another over time. Oh, so you can stay goitrogenic then for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When a patient presents with you with goiter, do you automatically put that patient on some type of thyroid hormone replacement? Um, in most cases, they already are by the time they, they see us. And if they do have a TSH that's even above optimal, then that that, that can be relevant for them. More and more now, I do lead with iodine regulation because that's just, just so powerful and many don't really need much beside that. But in the past, I would lean more heavily on thyroid replacement in those cases. Okay, now let's talk about the magic bullet in your diet, in your book, which I have on my Kindle and I'm loving it. Um, very controversial. So let's talk about iodine and iodine replacement. Sure, sure. So yeah, it's not the villain. We need it. It's an essential mineral for life. Uh, people have pretty consistent iodine requirements that are just a function of body size, not even like age or gender, but really body size. But people don't all have the same iodine tolerance. So everyone has a point at where they can become toxic on iodine. There's so much their kidneys can't clear it. But some people long below that threshold, there's too much for their thyroid to function well. And the extra iodine builds up, it can harm the thyroid cells, it can bring in the immune system, and that's how most most autoimmune thyroid disease starts. So the catalyst in autoimmune thyroid disease is iodine. You know, one quote from a recent big study said that there's there's three prime things we know cause thyroid disease. The first two are age and gender, which we can't do much about, right? Uh, they they mentioned that iodine was not the only other cause. There were other causes besides that. However all the other causes combined were not as relevant as iodine was by itself. So it's, it's like the biggest factor. Did our grandparents then have Hashimoto's and thyroid disease like we have now? You know, awesome question. Uh, no, uh, prior to iodine fortification, which started in 1924, well, um, we're probably, my, my grandpa was born in 1902. <laughs> and mm -hmm. Grandpa Christians, and my grandparents were around that age. Uh, but in before 24, the rates of goiter were higher. And that's what motivated iodine fortification was a lot of young men were given physical exams, possibly to be sent off as soldiers for World War I, but many were rejected because they had goiters. And so that, yeah, that pushed initiatives. And some areas that was more relevant than others, uh, but fortifying iodine in the salt, which was not a national mandate, but it was done regionally, the rate of goiter did go down in the following years by about, yeah, from like 30% at the worst in areas like Michigan down to like three to 5%. However, autoimmune thyroid disease 
Nearby there was Rochester, Minnesota in Olmstead County, and they had the Mayo Clinic. And they were tracking a lot of things even back when. And autoimmune thyroid disease was almost unheard of. You know, it's, it's not a coincidence that the gentleman who discovered it was a Japanese researcher, you know, Hiroko Hashimoto. So the rates of autoimmune thyroid disease for women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, in the years after fortification, it increased 26-fold. Not percent, fold. It went up 26 times. So, so no, our grandparents didn't have autoimmune thyroid disease. But <laughs> now the Japanese eat diets from the sea, mm -hmm. which is salt, which has iodine, right? So mm -hmm. did that propel why he, he founded the disease? Because there he was in the very essence of people who were eating diets high in iodine. Is that right? Well, the Japanese have the highest rates of all forms of thyroid disease, and they have for quite some time. But you know what? They don't seem like they battle their weight like Americans do. Do you think then it's a combination of our standard American diet as well as a low-functioning thyroid that's put our obesity rates, you know, on the map? For sure. A lot of things affect weight. And you're right. Generally, their their body mass has been lower, um, changing in the recent past. But but yeah, they've, they've got more thyroid disease than the rest of the world does. And is it because their diets are so high in iodine? Mm -hmm. The salt? That's thought to be the, the, single, the single biggest factor. Okay. And to so be really precise, they, their, their diet is very rich in sea vegetables. So salt itself is some versions of salt are fortified, many versions are not, but sea vegetables are just the highest sources by far in the diet. Okay, let's talk about the role of iodine then in our diet. How important is it and what does it do for our daily function and just metabolically? You know, we have to have it. Uh, without it, we can't have adequate thyroid function. But the question is, you know, how much, how much do we have and how much, how much is best for us? So the World Health Organization has tracked this all around the world for the last four decades in terms of areas that fortify iodine in their salt. And they found that there's a range of between about 50 to 200 micrograms per day that correlates with the lowest rates of thyroid disease. Okay. And sad thing, but back as recently as 92, 112 countries were averaging less than 30 micrograms per day. And that created just birth defects and tons of problems. But by 2014, all 112 countries, that was reversed. So now we have no countries categorized as at severe iodine deficiency. But we have 52 countries categorized as at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess. Oh, and wow. the US is one of those. So micrograms, we're talking about the smallest particle. So we're really talking about something that I'm using my fingers and you can see me. Of course, it's a podcast. <laughs> but tiny amounts for us tiny to amounts. consume, then how do we walk that tight wire? Well, that's the thing is that we get it from so many sources. And iodine is naturally occurring in some foods. Like we mentioned that the sea vegetables, you know, seafood, it's naturally there from the seawater. It's also, we talked about how it's added to some foods intentionally, like it's added to salt as a fortifying agent. Well, it can also be a contaminant. So it's a contaminant in dairy products. It's just a byproduct of sanitization used for the cow's teats. And then also it's a compound used in food processing. So highly processed foods use it as a preservative and as a texturizer. And then also we get it from topical forms and supplements and medications. So that whole total, when that whole total goes outside of that 200 micrograms, now we're on overload. We're drunk with iodine. <laughs> 
I mean, you can easily get too much. Yeah, yeah the, the kids call it turnt when you drink too much. They call you it get what? Turnt when you get turnt. Turnt. T u r n t. Turnt. Never heard that one before. Well, There's. I- <laughs> Thanks for helping me stay right. current. Right, right, right. I might be an old lady. Battle I'm losing otherwise. Right. I might be an old lady in birthdays, but I know my, I keep my ear to the ground with this stuff. Appreciate with the, that. The kids. Um, because so I'm thinking, so I got off the iodized salt. I've had thyroid disease now about 20 years, about 10 or 12 years ago, because I knew I knew I didn't need that, but I'm still getting plenty, even though i you know, so self-righteously have the good bougie salt, the Baja sea salt and the Himalayan salt. I'm still getting it though in just about everywhere I look. Well, so here's a weird thing. The Himalayan salt has twice the iodine content of iodized table salt. Oh no, (laughs) that's the good stuff for us intermittent fasters. We like putting that in our water sometimes, you know. If that's your main salt intake, you can average about five to 600 micrograms of iodine per day from that alone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I got to go. I got to go detox. In fact, that's a good question. How do you wring out the wet rag of all this iodine? That's a great analogy. So the thing, and the thing is, is that your thyroid can't get rid of a lot quickly. So it takes a certain excess to get the thyroid slowed down and gummed up. And because we need it, extra just shuts it down. But then since we can't get rid of it fast, it doesn't take much to keep us in that state of excess. So we've got to get below a threshold of about 100 micrograms per day or under. And that's really what the thyroid reset diet is about. Basically, it's just eat the green light foods, you'll do fine. Make sure there's no hidden iodine in your skincare products. We can talk about that. Uh, Avoid it from your supplements. Think about it from your medications. And with those steps, many can reverse thyroid disease. Okay, what are some of the green light foods you love? Uh, pretty much everything, you know, there's there's so many options. Uh, there's plenty of good versions of salt that are green light, like no iodine, uh, kosher salts, uh, Malden brand sea salt, Celtic brand sea salt. There's some good ones like that. Pretty much all of your plant foods with some weird exceptions are low, low iodine. So fruits, vegetables, intact whole grains, beans, legumes. The big sources are going to be processed grain products, you know, bread from the store, not stuff you would make at home, you know, not at all. Uh, and then we'll also see dairy products. And again, it's contaminant that way. Egg yolks have a fair amount, um, sea vegetables, some types of seafood, but those are the big dietary sources. And those, you know, my eggs don't have labels to tell me how much iodine I'm getting, the plants and vegetables, because I, I walk, you know, eat from the perimeter of the store kind of thing, but I don't know how much iodine I'm getting. Is there some type of iodine calculator we can take with us to the grocery store or we could eat or use every day when we're eating? You know, there's an app called Iodine Inventory that we've rolled out. So, so yeah, you're right. You won't see it on actually on any labels. It's not on any food labels. And even further, if you scour on the internet, you won't find extensive lists of iodine in food in general. You'll only see like half a dozen foods mentioned. And if you go on food nutrient calculators, uh, my fitness pal, nutrient data, anything, you won't see iodine. It's just not readily available. Why so, is that? Um, because it varies from sample to sample and because it's just not tracked in the same ways. So I did a ton of legwork and I found over 600 food sources and each one averaged about 50 different assays for the same food. And then I averaged all those. So yeah, so some foods usually are low, but sometimes have a lot. And so I still, I still push those out of the green light list just to keep people safe. 
Wow. So it really does change. It's fluid. It changes. It could change day by day. Well, and that's the thing, too, is that there's there's too little and too much, but also big right. changes can be a problem. So like Denmark, they were the last big country to fortify with iodine, and they didn't overload. They did it right on target. But just by moving an average intake up by 50 micrograms per day, which they did in the year 2000, they saw a thyroid disease increase by about 50% annual averages for 60, 16 years running. Is there any correlation between the iodine intake then? Because we have such high thyroid disease um, in the U.S., but with the thyroid cancer, because I've heard that thyroid cancer is even popping up more in, in kids like 16 to 20. There is. And sadly, simply avoiding iodine can't help when cancer is established, but it's a known factor for cancer risk, for thyroid cancer risk. Because what happens when somebody has their thyroid an ablation or um, radioactive iodine when they do that? So is that relate? So that's radio radioactive iodine, and then the connection or correlation to iodine. What happens there with the health of your thyroid? So, so yeah, so radioablation is done when the thyroid needs to be destroyed, uh, it's overactive, or if there's some remnant cancerous cells. And what they do, they, they use the same way that your thyroid is hungry for iodine. And they have people go on a diet for about two weeks, it's extremely low in iodine, and then they give them radioactive iodine. Now the logic is that radioactive iodine is gonna go pretty much nowhere besides their thyroid. And it's radioactive, so it'll destroy those cells and get rid of it. Now, interestingly, the ways we learned that a low iodine diet may be helpful, a lot of it came from that. There were many people that were being treated for other versions of thyroid disease, and they, they got better during the whole buildup to the scan. And so that prompted research on the effects of lower iodine diets. So I guess with your book, you're not saying really it's a thyroid reset diet is the name of the book. And we'll put that in the show notes, of course, and your podcast, the other things that you do. Um, but it's not a blanket statement. And you're saying then, Dr. Christensen, for everybody to lower their iodine or to increase their iodine. It, it is very individual. So someone reading your book, because I'm just in the very beginning where you said that the 80%, the shocking number of 80% of thyroid cases could be reversed or Hashimoto's even. Uh, where is a good place for someone to start then in assessing their either they have too much or too little iodine? So too little was a real problem historically. It's not a problem at present. So those who do have thyroid disease, they can assume that they have more to gain by reducing than by increasing. If someone is saying, well, I don't have thyroid disease, should they also be conservative in their thyroid, their iodine intake? Well, anyone, anyone with enough extra iodine can develop it. Some are more prone to it than others. So yeah, I talk about a reset phase, like you called it, the ringing out the, I love that, ringing out the sponge, uh, and also a maintenance phase. So if your thyroid's already stable or if it's now stabilized. And once you're at that place, you've got more leeway. And, and yeah, you can have more foods and less to concern about, but there still are extremely high sources you'd wanna be cautious of even on the maintenance phase. Is this more because we talked about um, gender and age and we do see more females with Hashimoto's. Do you still as personally as a male, do you employ those same conservation methods with your iodine intake? 
For sure. Yeah, I, I don't personally have thyroid disease, but I, I do avoid those, those high sources. My son and I backpack quite a bit, and there's various ways to purify water in the backcountry, and a popular one is iodine tablets. And uh, it's a lot bulkier to carry filtration units, and I, I use filtration units. I'm not going to ingest iodine in those tablets for those purposes. You this almost need example. a little, yeah, you need one little, a little red wagon to take with you on your, I mean, if you're bringing your own filtration. Well, thankfully, um, the filtration units are pretty compact, but, oh. you know, the, the, the tablets are even smaller, but I, I yeah. Right. <laughs> well, um, in the 50s and 60s, doctors were told that if somebody had um, uh, an overactive thyroid, glands working too much, they gave them fluoride tablets. That's what my endocrinologist mm-hmm. told me. So sure. what what is uh, I try to stay away from fluoride, but you know who's that's a difficult thing to stay away from. What do you think about that and the what it does to the gland? Yeah, it was used as a treatment for overactive thyroid, exactly as you said, and it's it still can be a factor if someone consumes pretty high amounts of that. It seems the threshold somewhere around five milligrams per day. So if you're consistently getting more than five milligrams of fluoride per day, it can be a driver slowing down the thyroid. And thankfully, that's an amount that's pretty easy to stay beneath. Like, you'll find fluoride in a lot of common foods, you know, kale and tea and spinach and plums. It's, and a lot of people just like scour every speck of it. But yeah, five milligrams. Sometimes the really high concentration dental sealants can go above that. Fluoride supplements can go above that. Fluoride in water actually doesn't go above that in municipal areas. But, but yeah, really high amounts of it can be a problem. Well, I've tried to stay away just because I I didn't know what the threshold was for my body. Well, and the other funny thing is that historically, one of the most, and even currently, so someone's thyroid is extremely overactive. The most life-threatening version of that is called hyperthyroid storm. And that's a version that can be lethal in the moment. And when you've got to stop someone's thyroid, like in that moment, nothing is more powerful than high-dose iodine. So that's that's still in use today for that reason. So, and I didn't realize fluoride was in our foods too. Mm-hmm. It's naturally occurring in a lot of foods. It varies based upon the regional soil, but the amounts in food, again, are not relevant. That's an argument I love to have with dentists when I'm a new patient is how I don't want, I don't use fluoride toothpaste and I don't want the fluoride treatment. And I say, there's this little town in New York that did a side-by-side study with people at fluoride and those who didn't. And the... Um, you know, cavity rate, was it any different? They're like, blah, 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 blah. You know, I don't like to hear it, but um, I just try to stay away from what I can. Let's talk about skincare products then. What in my skincare products, there might be iodine. That is shocking. That one shocked me, you know. So I first got some hints about that, looking at the FDA and how they pulled um, iodine out of hand sanitizers. And that was 2017. And they saw data showing how hospitals that used iodine-based skin sanitizers versus those that did not were having much higher rates of, of thyroid disease and much higher iodine excretion in their workers. So they, they banned those. And I thought about that and I started thinking about, you know, the, the fact that there are many iodine extracts in personal care products. So we've, we've tracked people and iodine testing, it doesn't really help to see whether or not you could benefit by reducing iodine, but it does help if someone has reduced iodine and they've not yet gotten better. In that case, testing can help you see if you're just still detoxing or maybe if there's some hidden iodine coming in. But what we learned is that many people would do the diet seemingly really well and go nowhere. 
and we would test them and find they were still dumping all this iodine. And then we started looking at personal care products. So um, PVP is the main thing we'll find in more, more of the synthetic skincare products. And then kelp extracts is what that's called in the natural products. And there's about a dozen names for each. It's actually on page 78 of the book. If you got the, the okay. Kindle, I think you can see the page and I'm bringing the Kindle. I think, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's, there's a list of all the other names for PVP and C extracts. And I found them in about a quarter to a third of personal care products. They're, they're not in everything. And if, if they are in something you're using, you've got a lot of options that don't have them. But I think it's most relevant for your, your skin lotions, for conditioners and face creams. I think those are the top three because that's stuff that we use a lot of volume and we put it on and we leave it. You know, we absorb, we absorb it entirely. What are your thoughts then on using saunas and red light therapy and those things for detoxing? You know, fine, just no data as far as iodine specific effects, but many find just general benefits and no, no drawbacks to them. Well, during the pandemic, you know, I, there are restaurants you go to, they'll say you must use the hand sanitizer when you walk in and I always pass and just say, no, nah, can't. I need a little rubber bracelet that said, I can't use your hand sanitizer. But I have wondered, I know what a hand sanitizer does to my microbiome and I didn't even think about the iodine do well, the iodine think? is not in them any longer, thankfully. Okay, so there's no, th none of that's it's in there. Okay, good. It's not yet been banned for personal care products, but that is being investigated. So then that that's what I was kind of wondering. I was wondering after the pandemic, are we going to worry about people then with too much iodine? But if it's out of our products, I do wonder yeah. then about the other stuff that's in a hand sanitizer that, you know, I, I really have no place to go with. You know, again, it's, it's part of the political <laughs> climate we're in, whether you wear a mask and use hand sanitizer, but I'll wear my mask, but I don't want to use your hand sanitizer. I worry about that. Um, let's talk about then what you think are the healthy levels for TSH or, or do you think that is subjective? So what's your no, opinion? There's a lot, of, a lot of data on that, you know, so our normal ranges, and you mentioned earlier that how they have come down, like I started practicing, they were, you know, 10 or 12 was on the upper end of normal. <laughs> oh my God. I would be dead. I couldn't get out of bed when mine was at four. If you, if I had to get to 10 or 12, I, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, for the listeners, it's a, it's a backward marker. It's kind of an odd thing, but the more your thyroid is underactive, the more your brain yells at your thyroid. So the higher the number gets. So yeah, the higher it is, the more your thyroid is sluggish. And when I started, yeah, 10 or 12 is normal. Now, most labs say that four and a half, sometimes you'll see five and a half is the upper limit. But there's been a lot of studies saying, you know, how did these levels vary in people that are free of thyroid disease and free of symptoms? And there's also been a lot of studies looking at, of those who have different thyroid levels, what are the health outcomes for longevity, for diabetes, for cardiovascular disease, for these various things? And then also kind of a third level of data is, in people that have thyroid disease in the normal range, how do their symptoms differ at, as the TSH fluctuates? And all those three things converge at somewhere between about, you know, 0.5 and 1.9 or maybe two per the study as somewhere like, and there's actually a pretty strong median score close to one. So that that's kind of the spread where healthier people tend to, tend to fall. And that'll differ for those who are quite elderly uh, pediatric, pregnant, uh, history thyroid cancer, they're all different, but everyone else, that seems to be where the healthiest people tend to run. Do you run a complete thyroid panel then? Are you looking at T4, T3, free T4, free T3, and I guess some even do T7 when you're looking at a thyroid patient? 
Yeah, T7 is a kind of a dated dated marker, but the the hormone the free hormones are good to look at as well. Interesting thing, those same data sets have been done for the free hormones, and there many have assumed that if the TSH is low in healthy people, that the free hormone should be high. Um, we don't see that in healthy people when we when we analyze them. They they tend to have low 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 normal T4 and a large variation of T3, but not consistently high levels of T3. With the levels then, define for me again, the free is, the T3, let's say, is one level, but free T3 is telling you what's bioavailable. Is that what that is? Yeah, yeah, you got it. So T, if it just says T3 or T4, it means total. And that means how much active hormone is there plus how much hormone is bound up by carrier proteins, which is inactivated. When it says the free fraction, it means just the active portion. Um, in most cases, someone's total amount of hormone is meaningful, but there are some cases in which they've got a lot more or a lot less hormone bound up than you might guess. And so, yeah, the, the free versions of the hormones are preferred within endocrinology now. They're, they're more accurate. I remember when I was uh, first diagnosed and I went back for my follow-up and I'd read all the books, Rita Aram's book, and this was, you know, 2003, 2004, and I came back and I was a thyroidologist at that time. I, my husband said I acted like they were murder mysteries. I would turn the page and go, ooh, listen to this. Like, I was so excited to read these things. And I, I remember that first doctor, we broke up, would give me... Um, armor or anything, because he said, you're fine. You're fine with just T4. He said, in fact, your um, TSH is at one. He said, and we think that's a good number. And I go, we, do you have a mouse in your pocket? Like who? He said, well, the endocrinology society of the planet. And I said, but I'm still tired. You know, I'm just still all these things. So I guess that's where I wonder subjectively for me, I, I feel best when mine almost looks hyperthyroid my heart rate's fine. My blood pressure is really good. It's low, in fact. Um, my A1C, I mean, anything that would make me a risk for anything else is fine. So do you, does it make you nervous sometimes when that TSH gets low, yet the patient is, is just a picture of health everywhere else? Well, that happens. And yeah, and it's a, it's a risk still. You know, a lot of risks are things that don't always show up and may not show up, but over the large over a large population, then there are more problems that emerge. When that does happen, I think of a few things, and it sounds like you've already gone through different types of thyroid meds. There's many people to where they do much better on natural desiccated thyroid, and a lot of folks will improve by that change. If someone's already on natural desiccated thyroid and they only feel well when their TSH is suppressed, that does happen. There's generally some secondary cause of fatigue there as well. So it can occur that you feel better, but there, there's there's something else that's not yet been caught. Um, you know, low latent iron depletion is one of the more common ones. We can see versions of apnea. We can see cortisol irregularities. But yeah, I want people to have their cake and eat it. I want them to feel well. I also want them to not be posing risks for themselves longer term. Well, it's a gluten-free cake anyway, so I just want you to know. <laughs> um, well, my doctor did tell me, he just said, I, I need a bone density test on you because he said, if we're going to continue this suppressed TSH, he said, I'll sleep better at night knowing that you're not osteopenia or anything. And well, a perspective too is that TSH is uh, not just for your thyroid, it's for your brain, for your bones, for your blood vessel lining. 
And it's it's a helpful growth signal. And too much of it certainly is a sign of things being awry, but all, all those hormones are important for all of your body cells. And, and yeah, it's good to watch your bone density, good to watch cardiovascular health. The drawback is that you can't always see risk until it shows up. And, and again, you might be fine, but we know there's so many data sets showing that if we look at thousands of people with suppressed TSH because either they're doing it themselves, their, their body's just, we call that subclinical hyperthyroidism, or because they're just on medication to do that, like those that were treated by old guidelines for thyroid cancer, we know they have higher rates of complications. So hyperthyroidism goes in five stages. And the first stage is the TSH gets just below range. Second stage, it flattens. The later stages are where the free hormones elevate. So they don't, they, we know they, they don't normally go high until later stages. A paradox for many people too is that when their TSH gets below range, their body starts getting more thyroid resistant. You know, they're, they're dumping oh. thyroid hormones faster and they're blocking those from their cells being used. What are some of the markers of thyroid resistance? Uh, just that, just really a suppressed TSH without elevations of free hormones. And do they come to you and feel bad then? Someone with thyroid res hormone resistant, are they still having symptoms then? Uh, some some do. Some will have it to where if they are not hyperthyroid, they're symptomatic. You know, that, that can happen as well. And, and again, there can also be completely secondary factors like some of the ones I mentioned. But yeah. When a woman goes through menopause then, do you start... Uh, pumping up the med, her thyroid meds because it's the gas pedal to the body and our hormones are regulated by our thyroid hormone has so much to do with our endocrine system. So at that point, does a woman need more thyroid hormone? You know, it's a fascinating question. And there's, you're definitely right. There's a strong interaction that way. So thyroid binding globulin, we talked about like the free hormones, the total hormones. The one that we make the most is thyroid binding globulin. And the strongest thing that fluctuates how much of that we make is our estrogen status. So if a woman is having menstrual cycles or on HRT, synthetic natural doesn't matter, or contraceptives, she'll make more thyroid binding globulin. So we know that a man or a menopausal woman who's not on hormones, per body size, they'll need a little bit less thyroid hormone. So if a woman's been menopausal for a while and she goes on HRT, if she's already on thyroid meds, she's gonna need more. She's gonna need an increase. And then vice versa. You know, if she if she were not going to go through menopause and not be on HRT or discontinue HRT and she were on thyroid meds, she's gonna need less. <laughs> hmm, boy, that that is like the iodine intake. It's just a tightrope, you know, of wondering what's best that's where and i know dr christensen you advocate this it's just communicating with your healthcare provider i think women for so long as i really have helped women with their thyroid journey i always say when the doctor comes in and says hey how you doing don't say fine <laughs> in the south everybody says fine how are you <laughs> i say that's where you stop and go my life sucks i am tired i am constipated my hair falls out but women just, and I say that, I shouldn't make a blanket statement on anything, but I'm saying, I just know my friends and I are the ones who go. be friendly and. <laughs> yes, right, and, and cordial and gracious. But I go, this is the time where you need to step up and advocate for yourself and go, I'm not well, you know? And in my family, it was my husband who noticed my fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, his mother at the time had stage four breast cancer and he said she had more energy than I did. Oh, and wow. I, I was, I was up to about three naps a day. <laughs> he oh. would say, 
because I was homeschooling my kids, he would come in and go, is this your noon nap? He'd go, I thought you already had your noon nap. I'd go, no, this is my 2 p.m. nap because I just had this fatigue that I, I mean, I'm laughing about it now because I feel great. I wake up in the morning, my feet hit the floor. And uh, for a long time, I did morning radios up at 3.45 or 4. I don't drink caffeine, you know. But so that's what I'm saying. When a woman says, or anybody really, but somebody says something's wrong, let's all agree something is wrong. Yeah, but it's, sure. it's just being placated or patronized to say your labs are fine. That's just a, I don't know, that's just a real punch in the gut. I just remember leaving doctor after doctor saying something's wrong. And it wasn't until, and you can see in the video that my vitiligo started popping out, that doctors did start going, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You really might have something. I'd go, mm. it took it took this, but it was. It was the correlation between the other autoimmune, you can see it on my arms, the other autoimmune conditions that made doctors finally perk up. So mm. do you do you look for other things? Do you say, you know, have you had, you know, do you have vitiligo? Do you, what are, there are so many different rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's and all the other things under that umbrella. Yeah. Do you see that often then in people, the connection? For sure, that's well known. Yeah, of all autoimmune disease, thyroid is the most common and all autoimmune diseases do tend to cluster. So if someone does have thyroid disease, they've got higher risks of having all the ones you mentioned, plus celiac, lupus, you know, MS, you know, all these things are more, more common. And by more common, they are good to be aware of, but uh, celiac, we've got a lot of numbers on that. So for example, those that don't have thyroid disease, about 1% will have celiac. Those that do have thyroid disease, well, 2.8% will have celiac, 2.8 or 3%. So it's more common, but it doesn't mean you're destined to have these things happen. Well, just in my personal life, I, I, I think my thyroid does better when I'm off gluten. Um, cause I do, you know, have labs done about once a year. Well, I have actually, I've noticed my antibody count one time got to 2,400 after my best friend had died. Those numbers went up during that stress and that it's now they've come down to like 50, you know, and I, I think the range is maybe to 40 or so. I don't even know. Cause it, it has changed too in the last 20 years, but I know that by, for me, removing things from my diet that are inflammatory gets that antibody list, that number down. Because doctors too, they get nervous or mine have when that antibody number continued to rise. You know, when I first got diagnosed, they were like 1300 and then maybe they went to 1500 because I didn't know what was, you know, and it probably caused a lot of stress in my life because that was it. Not feeling well is, a, is stressful. Yeah. Someone listening right now who's saying, sister, preach it, I get it not feeling your best is stressful because that means, you know, the axiom of mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's right. And so that's how it worked in our family, that if I wasn't at my high capacity, which I have pretty high capacity for things, then things felt like they were falling apart, which is then stressful on your marriage because I was too tired to even sit up and watch a movie, you know, and just the other things. And then the libido's down and all the other things. So I know that it helped it really spawned me. That's what made me become an advocate was like, okay, my 10 minute appointments with an endocrinologist are not filling my cup. I've got to do something about it. And I'm, I'm glad I did. One thing I've had to really argue with doctors about is uh, taking the natural desiccated thyroid hormone, because again, they like 
to tell me that batch-to-batch equivalency makes them nervous and things like that. What what are your apprehensions? I mean, I take I did armor and I take NP thyroid and I do need a little uh, T4 uh, levothyroxine. But what are your apprehensions against the desiccated thyroid hormone? You know, I do like people to be consistent on their brands, and some can do better with some T4 with it. But barring that, there was a large study done at, um, oh, I'm gapping on the name. This was a center in California. I almost think of the name, but this was just over a year ago. And they looked at how stable people's blood levels were on synthetic versus natural desiccated thyroid. And they saw there was no difference. There was no, there was no disadvantage for natural desiccated thyroid as it used to be thought. So it's, it's a reasonable option. And, you know, there are those who do well on T4 only, but they don't really come to see me or read the books like you read. I was going to say, <laughs> name one person. I want one person to chime in that says, I'm on T4 only and I feel great. I've never <laughs> met anyone. Uh, and again, I've my whole career has been a biased sample of not those people. So <laughs> there are right. many that don't. There's many that do much better on having the T3 and the T2. Because in my research, you know, and I, I know I'm 12 years away from a medical degree, so I'm not I'm not here to compete with you. But I ha- because when you have to advocate for yourself, you do have to find out. And so what I was reading about the natural desiccated thyroid hormone, because it is as close, it's pig thyroid, which is as close to our natural thyroid hormone, is that it had T4, T3, T1, T2, T1, and calcitonin, which mm-hmm. can't be replicated in a lab. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Those are and, all things the body needs and they're not, they're not available in synthetic medications just yet. And, you know, let's just go back to medical school for you. Who sponsored the thyroid symposium? Let me guess. Let me guess. Abbott Laboratories, the people <laughs> who pr- manufacture Synthroid, right? Back in the day, yeah. And that's that's been a big part of CEs and endocrinology. But we've, we've the funny thing is that um, if we look at all the literature that's been occurring these last few years, that's probably going to change in the coming years. There's a lot of more interest now in combination therapy and natural desiccated. There's there's really a resurgence that's, that's coming soon, I think. And the thing is, for me, that I've noticed is uh, NP, I guess, as a brand, it's even cheaper than Armor or Mm -hmm. Synthroid and other things. So it's not something financially that, you know, people get a, you get a better drug, it costs more. Not really. That's right. But I I have felt like, and when I talk to the doctors here, because I have, I've, I've spent the last 20 years of my life educating people about what I know about thyroid. And one thing is doctors have told me is there's no drug rep for armor or NP. And they would, and, and that's because they have, you know, these are family practice and internal medicine internists, diagnosticians who have to see the whole population. So they, they can't possibly know everything about every medicine, every condition. And so they're always surprised when I say, why, why don't you just look into armor or NP and they like have to look it up and go, gosh, Armour's been around for 150 years. I go, I know, because it works. <laughs> <laughs> so is that true? Is there no drug rep or there used to not be no drug rep for Armour or NP thyroid, but there was for Synthroid? Yeah, so AbbVie is the current manufacturer of Armour and um, uh, a, uh, RLC, RLC Labs, they make WP Thyroid and Nature Thyroid. And then we okay. have Acella Labs, which makes NP. And they do have they do have their sales reps, but it's not the same thing. They don't have someone that goes out to like you know all the all the doctor's offices and brings things in. It's a whole brings a fancy lunch and everything right. in service. <laughs> right, all right. I understand how the FDA has to allow that. So 
of these, I've done, I guess, NP, Armor, but there are Nature Thoroid, Unithroid. Are those all complete thyroid hormone replacements with T4, T3, T2, T1, T0, and calcitonin? So Nature Thoroid and WP Thyroid are. Unithroid is another brand of a T4-only medicine. And there's really, uh, there's basically two suppliers of the raw materials. There's uh, uh, American Laboratories, Inc., and their raw materials supply ABV for Armor and Acella for NP. And then RLC, they, they're their own manufacturer of raw materials. So they make WP and Nature Thoroid. But they're, they're really all the same freeze-dried desiccated pig. They're not, they're not different from one to the next as far as the raw oh. materials. Okay. The quality control and the binders or fillers can be a little bit different, but they're, they're all good products. Well, there was a time in my very beginning that I did T4, and before I read about Armor, they did add the lyothyronine, some Cytomel T3. Do you see some people improving just with T4 and T3? Uh, clinically, I don't see that as common. I, I do see some that do better on purified T4 only, or most commonly natural thyroid. Probably next most common is that plus T4, and then least most common is purified T4 only. But yeah, T3 plus T4, you're still missing a lot that you would get from natural thyroid. So I, and the difficulty too is that it's harder to have that T3 metabolize at a good time frame. So and there's, I, so I don't use that as much. Could a compounding pharmacist then maybe do so? The thing with T3 for me is that short half-life in and out of my system too much. It would kind of over-replace me just in the few hours in the morning. I just didn't feel great. And I've never done this, but could I have taken maybe that to a compounding pharmacist and they could have given it, you know, the longer half-life or whatever it is, the slow release version of that? You know, it, it makes sense. However, they've analyzed compounded time release T3 and it metabolizes the exact same way that Cytomel does. It doesn't really do what it says. Oh. And it's there's no quality control that goes on. There's no there's no analysis that takes place with it. And okay, yeah, then that makes sense. Well, let's talk about gut health then and thyroid. Um, we're all talking about gut health. What can we do to improve our gut health to absorb um, whether we're on thyroid medicine, maybe it's the iodine. What are some of your tenets for good gut health? A big thing long-term is a variety of fiber types. I think people think a lot about fiber as a thing. It's really a category. There's 15, 16 kinds in the diet. And the more we can cover the basis for types of those, the more robust and diverse our flora tends to be. So fiber that you take in a supplement every day or fiber that you get maybe in your foods yeah, yeah. From the diet, there's 16 kinds we can find in different food types, and by oh, eating all the food categories, we can do pretty well with that. Now, are you pushing more toward? And I haven't read the entire book. Um, things of pescatarian, paleo, vegan. Like, what is your preference on diet? Uh, my personal preference is is more omnivorous, but in terms of what people do well with, there's a lot of lot of room for people to do well on different dietary types. And, and yeah, I think the most relevant thing for thyroid health is, is iodine intake, and you can do that well on any of the diets. So all, the diet, the book's all made where you can be, if you're autoimmune paleo or you're vegan or you're just healthy omnivore, you, you can do fine any of those ways. Because people hear the word diet and they think that that means that they might lose weight. And that is not my perspective in this, but for some people, that thyroid patient, she's a little puffy. I'm just telling you, she's a little thick around the middle. Does this help her with losing some excess weight because she's getting her iodine levels in a where you think are optimal for her? 
many people, yeah, have an easier time managing their weight when their thyroid gets healthier. That, that's quite common. So we can reverse our Hashimoto's. That to me has been <laughs> the most fascinating thing uh, I've read or heard in so long. And I think it's so encouraging, Dr. Christensen. Thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, you call, I call it um, the little butterfly shaped gland, but I think you refer to it as the bow tie shape plan, correct? <laughs> the, I think a butterfly is a more common reference, but I, the bow tie, I think about like where it sits, like where you wear a bow tie and the shape of it, the size of it, all the locations. So yeah, they're <laughs> both good analogies. Well, that's one more thing then before I let you go. Um, there was a time that doctors would palpate your thyroid to feel the gland. Um, do people still do that? Is that old fashioned? Um, it's, it's still done. It should be done. You know, there are things you pick up on ultrasound. You don't always pick up on palpation and a healthy thyroid is often non-palpable. You often can't feel really anything, but it, because it's, it's part, of a, part of a good exam still. Oh, another part of the exam, my initial exam was the, the doctor finally said, Oh, I think something's wrong. He checked my reflexes and they were so slow. I was, I just sat there and said, like he hit them. And I felt like a minute later, my little leg came out. Yeah. And I said, what's this? He said, that's what doctors used to do. They would check your body, have you check your body temperature, he said, in the morning. And he was 70, 70 years old, 20 years ago. I don't even know if he's still alive. He said, and they would check your reflexes. Do doctors still do that? Uh, for other reasons. That is stuff that you're taught in medical school. Your deep tendon reflexes, especially your Achilles reflex, was used for thyroid function. And by and large, our, our tests are much, much better now. Those, those are things that they pick it up at the extremes but they're hard to be relevant for more, more early changes of thyroid disease. Well, everyone can have good thyroid health thanks to your book. And uh, I'm really excited about it. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. And continue to be a thyroid evangelist. We need, we need the Dr. Christensen's of the world. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm doing my best. And it was, a, it was a fun discussion. You know your stuff and it was fun to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes. The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by the Clanton Boys at clantoncreative.com. For more information, go to the show notes and they can produce a podcast for you and make you podcast famous. It's Lisa Fisher time.